This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. This week was certainly no exception to that. And while it's tough sometimes for Radio Parallax to pick out the biggest news item of the week, I have to say that the past week is a no-brainer. We open open the program with Radio Parallax's big news story, which is the passing of Don Rickles. This correspondent was always denied the opportunity to see Mr. Rickles, but I did have a ticket to go up to Reno in February for a show with Rickles and Regis Philbin. Unfortunately, my buddy who'd made the arrangements sent me a text message saying, there's some problem with the show. Can you look it up? I went on the web and found out that, yes, indeed, it had been postponed, they said, due to an illness with Mr. Rickles. I texted my buddy Kevin back and said, at age 90, this is not good news. Let us hope this is just a postponement. Alas, it's a cancellation. Mr. Rickles has moved on to playing an even bigger room. I think the reason we're opening with Don Rickles today is the fact that in this era of political correctness, there's nobody that ran more against the tide than Don Rickles. Curiously enough, he never set out to be a comedian, let alone an insult comedian. He intended to be an actor. The one-time president of his high school drama society applied and, to his surprise, was accepted into the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, where his classmates included Jason Robarts, Tom Poston, Grace Kelly, and Anne Bancroft. Unfortunately, after graduating from the Academy and failing to land roles, he changed his career. In 1951, he found an agent who got him a job as a comic for $25 a night at a third-rate club in New Jersey. He went to L.A. in the 50s and performed six nights a week at the, at the Slate Brothers Club, and began gaining notice for his jabs at the Hollywood celebrities who showed up in the audience. To Elizabeth Taylor, he said, Elizabeth, you gotta stop calling me. I'm going with someone. When Gene Kelly showed up, he said, Enough with the rain. I'll buy you an umbrella. Evidently, about the same time while playing in Miami Beach, he gained Frank Sinatra as a patron when Sinatra and his entourage unexpectedly showed up at one of Rickles' events. From the stage, Rickles said, Frank, make yourself comfortable. Hit somebody. And without missing a beat, he hit the accelerator and said, Frank, believe me, I'm telling this as a friend. Your voice is gone. He made many efforts to crack television and appeared on lots of TV programs in the 50s, including, believe it or not, The Twilight Zone, Wagon Train, The Andy Griffith Show, Get Smart, and The Addams Family. By the 60s, he was something of an institution, appearing at the Sahara Hotel's famous Casbar Lounge, where again, he would score big laughs by needling the celebrities who attended. Apparently, Dean Martin once told the comics audience at the cast bar, Don Rickles is the funniest man in show business. But don't go by me, I'm drunk. Given Rickles' style of humor, he was considered too risky for television. That apparently changed when he appeared on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson in 1967. He greeted Johnny by saying, hi, dum-dum. He interrupted Carson's attempt to respond by saying, where does it say you get to butt in, dummy? I'm fed up with you already, you know that? As Carson broke up, Rickles continued, That's it, laugh it up. You're making $50 million a year and your poor parents are back in Nebraska eating locusts for dinner. Carson and the audience 
Carson and the audience howled, and Rickles went national after that. He was 38 that year in 1965 when he finally got married. Apparently at his wedding reception, the newlyweds' friends Steve Lawrence and Edie Gourmet got up and sang more. Rickles was to write in his biography, by the time they got to the second verse of of the love song, my tears were flowing. My life had turned gold. My Barbara will be with me forever. A few minutes later, of course, he reverted to his old self, telling Steve and Edie, you know, you sang beautifully, but I had no idea you'd ask for money. Yeah, he insulted anybody and everybody just about, but um, as he pointed out, it was all in fun, which is why he got away with it for so long, and in fact, people just loved it. Fresh Air replayed several of the interviews conducted uh, with and about Don Rickles last week. And near the end, Terry Gross says, I just have a request. Would you insult me? I suppose these days, if God forbid he would try to make an appearance at a, an American university, they'd have to put trigger warnings up everywhere. And the thought police have to put up a giant safe space around wherever he was appearing. Anyway, I'm not going to go off on that at length today, but uh, Don Rickles, gone but not forgotten. On a less amusing note, something that has, uh, that has gone uh, and should not be forgotten is the fact that 100 years ago last week, you should have noted this on last week's program, but it was 100 years ago, April 6th, 1917, that America officially entered World War I. A tremendously effective propaganda program was put out by the federal government under the Woodrow Wilson administration to convince the public that we needed to get involved in the European war. Looking back on it 100 years later, I'd say it seems pretty clear to me that we, in fact, did not need to get involved. And in fact, our getting involved allowed the Allies to institute a very unfair peace upon the Kaiser's Germany, in fact, blaming them for the whole conflict unfairly. And then it had some rather profound consequences the rise of the Nazis and World War II being pretty high on the list. And speaking of the Nazis, as our, president's spoke, as our president's spokesperson has pointed out, as bad as they may have been, at least they never used poison gas on their own people. It was pointed out to Mr. Spicer that in fact, um, the Nazis had employed poison gas in some capacity. He attempted to rebut by saying, well, he wasn't using it in the same way that Assad's using against his own people. Apparently, his remarks reached such a level of asininity that this actually evoked a rare apology from the Trump administration. I think we need to move on a big way from that. And to do that, why don't we jump right into the good, the bad, and the ugly? According to the Week magazine, and this item certainly comes from the duh file, it was a good week this past week for natural remedies after European researchers found that people who live near trees and green spaces are happier, healthier, and less likely to be dependent on antidepressants. Said the group that commissioned the study, we all need nature in our lives. You know, let's double up on all these items. We would also note then that it was... A good week for quiet dinners with with the news that an Italian restaurant in North Carolina saw its business double when it decided to stop serving children under age five. Owner Pasquale Caruso said it ruins his customers' dinners, 
quote, when there's constantly food on the floor, loud electronic devices keeping kids entertained, and small children screaming, unquote. Well, it sounds harsh, but Mr. Caruso does have a point, doesn't he? Of course, if children were, were reined in a little bit more effectively by their parents uh, uh, currently, we, we might have this be less of an issue, don't you think? Moving right along, it was a bad week last week for the gender gap after the Washington Free Beacon reported that equal pay champion Senator Elizabeth Warren, on average, pays her female staffers $20,000 less than her male staffers. We hope that's not true. It was also a bad week this past week for hiring Americans after Eric Trump's Trump winery applied for permission to hire 29 more foreign workers to plant vines and pick grapes for about 10.72 an hour at its Virginia plantation. An attorney for the winery explained, it's difficult to find people. Here's a bad one. It was an ugly week a couple weeks back for Africans living in India with the story that African students have been told to stay indoors after a wave of mob attacks on Africans in a New Delhi suburb. The violence apparently began when a teenage boy went missing and his family accused Nigerian neighbors of killing and eating him. And it gets even worse. The boy returned home a few days later and died of a suspected drug overdose. But by then, rumors of cannibalistic Africans had swept the neighborhood. Mobs of Indian men were beating African students, pulling them out of cabs and stomping and hitting them. Nigerian student Precious Amlawa told reporters they attacked him with bricks, sticks, and belts. Evidently, 25,000 Africans are currently studying in India. It was also an ugly week this past week for bringing back the U.S. coal industry with the news that it employed just 76,000 workers in 2014. This is fewer people than are employed by Arby's, Dollar General, or J.C. Penney. It's said that even if there were as many coal workers as there were 25 years ago, which was 131,000, the coal industry would still employ fewer people than the retail shoe sales industry, which puts 224,000 people to work. In another bad employment news, we have this story from Sweden that, uh, well, apparently some people have the bright idea of uh, turning their workers into cyborgs. Evidently, the Swedish startup hub Epicenter has given employees the option of having microchips implanted in under their skin with which they can open doors, operate printers, or buy smoothies with just a wave of their hands. Apparently, at Epicenter, the chips have become so popular that employees hold monthly chipped parties for new employees getting the implant. Said Epicenter's CEO Patrick Mesterson, wonder how my Swedish accent will be, the biggest benefit, I think, is convenience. It basically replaces a lot of things you have, whether it be credit cards or keys. Yeah, that may be a bad Swedish accent, but it's a bad idea. At least it is in our book. All right, let's do two items from the Only in America file. These also come from the Week magazine, as did a, a great deal of what has preceded this. These two items may go a long way to explaining why we were lauding Don Rickles at the top of the hour. Only in America item one. Latino students at Pitzer College in California have set off a furor by accusing their white classmates of, quote, cultural appropriation, unquote, for wearing hoop earrings. Yes, apparently Latina students say that ghetto styles like oversized hoops arose as an act of resistance to, quote, a historical background of oppression and exclusion, and have asked, why should white girls be allowed to take part in this culture? Mr. McMillan? All right, Only in America, item part two. 
a Northern Arizona University student, had her grade reduced on an English paper for using the term mankind rather than a gender-neutral alternative. Kaylin Jeffers appealed, saying the term clearly refers to all people. Her professor, Dr. Ann Scott, countered that it is sexist and does not mean all people to all people. She urged Jeffers to look beyond her present ideologies and resubmit the paper. Boy, Dr. Ann Scott really has a point here, don't you think? If, say, a woman was beating the crap out of me, it would be wrong for me to say that I was being manhandled, wouldn't it? My grandpa was named Manuel. I guess he should have been Personuel. Must we rename that poisonous oceanic selenerate the Portuguese person of war? You know, we at Radio Parallax are just not down with this. It wouldn't have been the same if upon stepping off the Apollo 11 on the lunar surface, Neil Armstrong had said, that's one small step for a person, one giant leap for person kind. I, uh, I'm being handed a note right now by Mr. McMillan. Um, uh, someone is calling in, I guess, and would like to speak to us. Is that correct? That's correct. Well, from what, I, from what you've written here, apparently someone from the Institute for Improved Language, or ILL, uh, is calling in. This is Professor Chris Leslie. Uh, all right, put him through. All righty, line one. Uh, this is Professor Chris Leslie. Yes, this is Dr. Leslie. I was listening to your show, and if you don't mind, I'd like to say a few things. I presume this is on the subject of gender-neutral language. Yes, indeed it is. Uh, by the way, Professor, what is ILL? Well, ILL is the Institute for the Improvement of Language. It's a thing that we started in the hopes that we could raise the consciousness of the country as to the usage of words in a male-dominated way. And you, for several examples that we want to point out that are really egregious. For instance? Take the word mannequin, for example. Did you know that most mannequins are not men? I, I guess so. And yet, what starts the word mannequin? Mannequin. Man. See? Yeah, see, you're starting to get it. That's the point, that it should not be all male-dominated. Okay, well, what, what, what term would you prefer? Dummy. Well, frankly, th that is a term that might be applicable to this whole discussion. Doug, we're just trying to change the public consciousness as to these words. In fact, we're working with many corporations to help change their point of view, change the verbiage that these corporations use in many of their products. For example, we've all heard of the jingle with, the, with Campbell's Soup, the manhandlers. How do you handle a hungry man? The manhandlers? Why? What? Do only, only men get hungry? I mean, why can't it be the person handlers? Well, I imagine your institute's going to be demanding quite a few changes then in various advertising jingles and slogans and the like. Exactly. In fact, there are many other companies that we need to raise their consciousness. For example, Swanson. Now, everyone's heard of the Swanson Hungry Man dinners, but of course the word man is offensive there. We want it to be called the Hungry Human Dinner. We think that would be a much more appealing name. But yes, but, but, but doesn't, doesn't the term human have man in it? Isn't that the whole point? It, it, it does, but... Well, it, 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 let's just say it's a, it's a point of intense debate back at the Institute. I see. We're satisfied with Hungry Human Dinner, but we are hoping to change it to Hungry Hugh Person Dinner. Uh-huh. And you, you think the term Hugh Person is likely to catch on? No, not at first, but eventually it will, yes.
And by the way, Doug, this goes far beyond advertising. Uh-huh. It's not just limited to brand names. For example, in the world of science, may I point out the term manatee? Very offensive, very offensive. Manatee is offensive. Yes, we really would much prefer the name thingity. Well, I, get, I guess that gets around the problem of referring to a marine mammal as a person. Doug, it may sound awkward now, but believe me, in a couple of decades, people will get used to it. Thingity. Yeah, thingity. It has a certain, well, it doesn't have a ring to it yet, but given enough time, believe me, the word thingity will become part of the language. All right. You know, and the other area that we are concentrating on at the Institute is the area of music. Now, we realize it may be very difficult to crack that area, but we are trying very hard. We are picking our battles carefully. Uh -huh. For example, we are starting with the Hall & Oates song, Maneater. You've heard of it? Yes. Sorry to say. Now, that song, the word man-eater is, uh, it's obviously offensive. In fact, the lyrics, you know, it goes, watch out, boy, she'll chew you up. I don't know about you, but it, it, it's a little offensive. Well, the song certainly does point to a woman as being the man-eater of the title, yeah. The term man-eater either refers to a shark or a vicious, nasty woman. Now, we all know that just as many women get eaten by sharks every year as men. Is that true? I'm not sure, but it sounds right. Well, well Professor Leslie, what changes might you request of, of Hall & Oates? Well, Doug, I'm no singer, but I think that the song could be rewritten something like this. Oh, here, here she comes. Watch out, boy or girl, here she will chew you up. Oh, here, here she comes. Here she's a person eater. Yeah. Now, I know that doesn't do it justice, but I think you get the gist. Now, I have another song. No, yeah, actually, I, I, I think I get the gist on this one. Well, we certainly welcome your input into this program. Thank you for having me on the show. Well, that was Dr. Chris Leslie of the Institute for Improved Language. I guess we'll have to have the good doctor on again sometime soon. All right, for our quote of the day, we're going to go with an old one from Jonathan Swift. How is it possible to expect that mankind will take advice when they will not so much as take warning? That could certainly lead to a discussion of global warming, couldn't it? And isn't it a horrible commentary on the current state of society that the nation is going to demonstrate for science on April 22nd? Yes, people are apparently going to have to turn out to support science. This allows us to segue into our quip of the day, which is that science flies you to the moon, whereas religion flies you into buildings. You know, for our joke of the day, well, I think we've already got that covered with our Don Rickles obit. We always need a good news uh, addition to the program, and for this week's show, we're going to select the fact that the bald eagle is back, and we're not talking about Alaska, we're talking about the Bay Area. Bald eagle nests have currently been reported from Lake Chabot in Castro Valley to the Sinol Regional Wilderness in Sinol, and even in Milpitas, Palo Alto, Los Gatos, Morgan Hill, and Gilroy. For the past half century, of course, the bald eagle has been an endangered species. Though I'm not sure it technically made the list, but it certainly has had disappeared from most of the uh, environment in the lower 48. But thanks in part to the restriction of certain pesticides, which were 
causing the eggshells of this and other birds high in the food chain to thin and break, well, you know, they're coming back. Of course, stick around. If we close down the EPA, we may be able to see a reversal in that. Our stat of the day comes from Recode.net and notes that as of this last week, the electric car company Tesla is reputedly worth more than the 113-year-old Ford Motor Company. This is because Tesla now has a market capitalization of $47 billion compared with Ford's $45 billion. We have a problem with this since, as you no doubt might guess, last month Tesla sold 4,000 vehicles in the U.S., while Ford sold 234,000. Remember how, when applying this math of market capitalization a couple decades ago, AOL was able to buy Time Warner? I don't know. I'm no economist, but there's something wrong when the minnow swallows the whale. And I think for our anecdote of the show, we're going to go with something that came out of Angela Merkel's recent meeting with Donald Trump. I don't know if any of you caught the expression on Merkel's face as Trump was speaking, but talk about a picture being worth a thousand words. Writing in the publication Build, Julian Reichelt said that Angela Merkel seemed gloomily fascinated by Trump's ignorance and willful duplicity. And of course, Trump did use their press conference to repeat the false allegation that he had been wiretapped by President Obama and joked to the chancellor that at least we have something in common. Merkel looked stunned at the comment, and Reichelt notes that almost everything else Trump said was somewhere between false, untrue, and a lie. He claimed, for example, that German trade negotiators were doing a better job than their American opposites. In fact, negotiators from the European Union, not Germany, are now discussing a trade pact with America. Then he accused Germany of owing vast sums to the U.S. for NATO, when in fact there are no NATO dues. Each member nation has pledged to spend at least 2% of its gross domestic product on national defense by 2024. Germany, while it spends only 1.2% today, is on track to hit that target. Reichelt notes that Merkel is now grimly aware how, quote, the most powerful man in the world has declared war on the concept of facts, unquote. All right, a few weeks back, we were a little bit critical of the Sacramento Bee for not being up on the Oroville Dam story, but the Bee is clearly making up for any laxity with the, the article they put on Friday, April 7th. Piece by Dale Kassler is headlined, Oroville Dam won't be fully fixed before next rain season. To quote from the piece, state officials sketched a two-year recovery plan Thursday for the battered Oroville Dam spillway, revealing a blueprint that's far from complete, still in the need of a price tag, and certain, certain to leave the structure partially damaged as the next rainy season approaches. The plan, unveiled by the Department of Water Resources, will proceed in phases and won't be finished until 2018. Notably, the giant ravine that's been carved out of a nearby hillside, the result of water boiling out of the fractured spillway in recent weeks, could be used again next winter to handle excessive water releases. That's reassuring, isn't it? Could be used again next winter. Acting DWR Director Bill Croyle said the 3,000-foot-long chute will be functional next winter. Croyle acknowledged the plan is a work in progress. He told reporters, we have a little less than 60% design. The piece goes on to note that the crater that erupted February 7th essentially split the concrete spillway in two. Water gushing down the spillway, misdirected by a giant chasm, carved an enormous ravine in a nearby hillside. 
Croyle said DWR plans to leave the ravine in place this year. It could serve as a kind of auxiliary outlet in case the reservoir is rising too high. And the concrete structure, despite its repairs, can't handle excessive water flows. This is all very reassuring, isn't it? The article goes on. The lower spillway itself will be demolished and replaced over the summer, said DWR Chief Engineer Gene Cuttell. It will be stronger than it was before, she said. Good plan. The state plans to use quick-drying roller-compacted concrete on the lower portion of the structure, she said. Croyle and Cattell said the upper portion of the spillway, though undamaged, might be partially or completely replaced this summer as well. Okay, okay, you might want to make up your minds and go with a replace or not replace. Croyle said recent geotechnical studies have shown much of the upper spillway is thicker than previously believed and might not have to be replaced. Now, I'm not a structural engineer, but don't you think they should know exactly how thick the upper spillway is? Notes the article. Meanwhile, the DWR plans to partially line the adjacent emergency spillway with concrete this summer. Yeah, remember the emergency spillway? The one that started to erode and, due to the fear of catastrophic failure, caused 200,000 people to be evacuated? Yeah, a little concrete on top of that might, might be a good plan. Anyway, we'll continue to follow that story, and hopefully so will Mr. Kassler at the B, upon whom I think we are all dependent for some information. All right, here's a sad item that we are nevertheless glad to report on. Dateline, New York City. The families of 2,350 people killed or injured in the 9-11 attacks are suing Saudi Arabia and Manhattan court this week, accusing the country of, quote, knowingly providing material support and resources to the Al-Qaeda terror organization and facilitating the September 11th attacks, unquote. This This lawsuit is coming months after Congress overwhelmingly overrode a veto by President Obama to allow Americans to take legal action against countries that support terrorism. Obama argued that the law could lead to retaliatory lawsuits by other nations against American citizens and corporations. As you well know, 15 of the 19 hijackers who carried out the 2001 attacks on New York and Washington were Saudi Arabian. And of course, a section of the 9-11 Commission report declassified last year outlines the ties between the hijackers and associates of Saudi Arabian Prince Bandar. The families are seeking unspecified monetary damages. All right, and as you may well have noticed, Radio Parallax is not often in sync with the editorials that appear in the Wall Street Journal. But we are on this one. Jack Marshall, writing in the WSJ, asked, What if your telecom company tracked the websites you visit, the apps you use, and the TV shows you watch? Also, the stores you shop at and the restaurants you eat at, and then sold that information to advertisers. Well, thanks to Congress, AT&T, Verizon, and Comcast can now do exactly that. The House of Representatives voted a week ago to dismantle strict online privacy rules set up by the Obama administration that would have required Internet service providers to get customers permission before selling their data to third parties. The legislation, which President Trump signed into law, is a huge boon to the major telecoms, which hope to build billion-dollar online ad businesses to rival those of Facebook and Google. Well, I know there are ways we can disguise our searches and what we do online, and it's time to think, take a real hard look at 
just doing that on general principles. Writing in Vox.com, Timothy Lee says that one option is to use a virtual private network, which hides your browsing information from your internet provider, but those can be both pricey and hard to set up. Mr. Millen takes some issue with those assertions. It is probably true that most internet users won't bother to use such a complicated workaround. Lee notes that the advantage of the just overturned rule was that consumers would get privacy by default. Now, the burden is on us. We've also been at times critical of the Federal Bureau of Investigation on this program, but we do have to give credit where credit is due. Two weeks back, the FBI recovered quarterback Tom Brady's stolen Super Bowl 51 jersey in Mexico. TMZ.com reported that investigators used security video from the Patriots' locker room to identify the suspected thief as Mauricio Ortega, the director of the Mexican newspaper La Prensa and an avid memorabilia collector. Valued at $500,000, Brady's number 12 jersey went missing shortly after he led the New England Patriots to a dramatic 34-28 victory over the Atlanta Falcons in Houston. Security cameras captured Ortega, who had press credentials as he entered the locker room behind Patriot coach Bill Belichick and left 14 minutes later with an object tucked under his arm. All right, so FBI, job well done. Now, how about this whole Russian connection thing? Do you think you can look into that one? I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. We've got more in the next half hour, so don't go away.